You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Hebrews chapter 10, as we continue our series on one another, how we're to treat one another, and ultimately, again, I remind you that these things apply not just to our lives uh, in, in harmony or in, in the church, in the body of Christ, but they also apply to our lives individually as we live out relationships um, in marriage, in our family, as friendships, co-workers. These are the ways that Christians treat each other, a new kind of ethic in the Christian life and how we're to live. And so Hebrews 10 is our next passage, the next place that we find a one another command and again, as, as we looked in Ephesians, this one is kind of set on the backside of a lot of other truths. Um, but it's really important that we understand that those truths kind of set the foundation for how we understand what the writer of Hebrews says to us and what he commands us to do at the end of the passage. And this is one I think that should resonate with all of us. How many of you need a little bit of encouragement every now and again? How many of you? Anybody? Uh, Encouragement goes a long way in our lives. I think we understand that with our children, um, that they need encouragement from us in order to know what to do. and, And in order to do it, sometimes we've got to remind them. And Christians are the same way. And so the writer of Hebrews gives us a command to encourage one another and gives us how to do that as the body of Christ. So if you found your place, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. As we go together to Hebrews 10, look with me at verse 19 and following. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that as we get into your word this morning and as we approach your presence, Lord, as you speak to us, I pray, God, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive the things that we see here in your word. God, may we understand what it means to truly encourage one another in Christ. Lord, I pray that these truths would resonate in our hearts and that they would ultimately produce obedience in our lives. 
We need your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and God to apply the things that we hear to our hearts. Lord, I pray that if there's one here that's never trusted in Christ, in reality, they may have been playing games or giving some appearance of being a Christian. But Lord, today they, if they were honest, don't know Jesus. And so I pray that you would convict them of that reality today. And that today they would trust in Him for salvation. As your word is preached, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You can be seated. The one another command, I think, is pretty explicit in the text. If you're just reading along, it it doesn't take a whole lot of digging to come up with what the writer of Hebrews is desiring from us and ultimately then what the Holy Spirit would desire from us. It's right there at the end of the passage. Notice it in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then he kind of repeats the same kind of thing a phrase later when he says, but encouraging one another. Both of those things put into the same idea, the same meaning. He's trying to encourage the church, encourage the body of Christ to encourage one another. Now, what's so interesting about this passage is that it is in a worship context, in the context of the gathered church. Go back with me just two chapters to chapter 8, and you'll see the the writer of Hebrews is kind of building a a theme here, uh, kind of building a context for us. And he's reminding us that there used to be this system in the Old Testament where the priest would go in every year and they would offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And through that sacrifice, the people would ultimately be cleansed. And he's reminding the Hebrew people of the sacrifice that used to be offered regularly for their lives and for their sin. But he tells them that all of that was intended to point to a better sacrifice, a better offering that was being offered on their behalf. And ultimately, then, a better high priest. One who would not go into the temple daily, but rather would go into the holiest place once and for all and would tear the veil. And ultimately, that high, that high priest would be the one who would mediate between God and man. He would become the one who ever, le- ever lives and intercedes for us. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 8 and verse 1 who that one is. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And he would go on to describe this high priest as being the one himself, Jesus Christ, who is living and interceding for us. Then he transitions after chapter 8 into chapter 9, describing the place. So the the tabernacle, the the temple, the place of meeting where the people of God would gather together and the the presence of God would be there. So chapter 9 and verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. The tent was prepared in the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. And so the writer of Hebrews is setting up this reminder of the people of this holy place that they used to gather. But what he says is that place is not the same place anymore. It was only pointing to a better place, a place where the presence of God was dwelling for all of eternity. Verse 11, he says that, the, that when Christ appeared as a high priest 
of the good things that have come than through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. That is not this create, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Isn't that good news this morning? We have a great high priest and we're no longer offering those sacrifices, but rather Jesus is offering up himself for us by his blood. And so as a result, as we continue to read throughout these chapters, we are reminded of this, how Christ is so much better. And it's about Jesus and it's about being in God's presence more than it's about a a physical offering and a physical place that Jesus became all of that for us. You see, it's a a gathered worship context where the people of God are understanding what it means to gather together and to be in His presence and to worship Him. And it's in that context that the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, verse 19, brothers, we have confidence, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The writer of Hebrews is communicating to us that there is a need for us now as the body of Christ to draw near to God. A great need for us to love God and to worship Him together. And part of the purpose of that gathering, don't miss it, is that we would, verse 24, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So one of the reasons that we come together as the body of Christ for worship is not ultimately so that we might have just a good worship experience where we enjoy the music or maybe not, where we enjoy the preaching or maybe not, or where we hear from the Lord, certainly. One of the purposes of our gathering is not at all for ourselves. In fact, It is for those around us that through the gathered church, people might be encouraged toward love and good works. They might be encouraged to live out what Jesus has called them to in God's word. And so notice he says that we should consider. It means to pay close attention to. One of the places that that's used, one of the places in Hebrews that that word is used is chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The same kind of word, just more a, a more emphatic version of it, is used in chapter 12 and verse 2, that we are looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We're considering Him. So the, writers, the writer of Hebrews is saying that we ought to consider one another in the same way. You wouldn't take a passing glance at Jesus. You wouldn't just consider Him lightly. You would consider Him deeply. One commentator says that it means to fix the eyes of the Spirit upon someone. Considering one another. And if you read the context in the whole book of Hebrews, you you find that there's a danger throughout the book of Hebrews for these people that are in the church and walking away from their faith. And so there's a a need for accountability here, but the command, the command that he's giving to the, the, the Hebrew people, the, the church now, is that we should consider one another for the purpose of positive accountability. We looked at negative accountability last week. This week to invoke a, a desire, an intense kind of desire, a stirring, if you will, to do what God has called us to do. 
and particularly that we would promote in the way that we encourage one another, that we would promote longings within the heart to love in greater ways and to live like Jesus in greater ways. So what is he saying to us? Well, the one another command in the passage is that the gathered church and understand this. This isn't just for the Hebrew people. It's for us. The gathered church must encourage one another toward increasing love and righteousness. That is what our, our, one of our purposes in gathering for worship. Gathering as a people is that we would encourage one another toward increasing love and righteousness. This is not just an encouragement to make somebody feel good. Like that can be done in, in falsehood, right? We can say to someone that, uh, that they're really good at something when in reality we know they're not. We just want to make them feel good, right? That's, that's something that we do often. Or uh, that you did a really good job and yet we're thinking in our back of our minds <laughs> somebody else could have done that a whole lot better. In reality, we just want to make them feel good. We're trying to encourage them. Or maybe we just give uh, casual kinds of, of statements to make someone feel better about themselves that are true. But at the end of the day, that's not what at, all, at all what the writer of Hebrews is describing. What the writer of Hebrews is describing is a kind of encouragement that produces something, an action. Not just making someone feel better about themselves or something else, but rather do more, love more, live more for Jesus. Increasing love. It's an ever-increasing love. When we gather together, it ought to be producing more love for Jesus and one another and ultimately increasing righteousness. One of those kinds of people that we see in Scripture is Barnabas. Acts tells us that his name is translated the son of encouragement. And if you follow the Acts narrative, what you find is any time the church was doing big things and, and attempting great things for God and just praying together and in harmony, you almost always find Barnabas there. Because Barnabas was saying to the church, listen, we've got to do more for Jesus. There is was 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 an urgency in our heart. And, and I want you to hear me say this morning that there, there, are, there are going to be some people that get discouraged in the body of Christ. There are going to be some people that are naysayers that say, you know, you know, we just can't even ever get this thing right. There's going to be some people who are always, woe is me and the sky is falling in the body of Christ. But we need people within the body of Christ that would say there is a mission that we've been called to and we have a good God and He is worthy of our praise and worthy of our obedience and we ought to chase after kingdom things with all that we are. These are prophet kind of people that rise up and say, let's do something for Christ. You ought to love each other in, in greater ways. You ought, you ought to find some ways that you can serve Jesus. You ought to love your neighbor. You ought to be serving them. You ought to be doing all of these things. Those are the encouragers in the body of Christ. And in fact, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is in a sense, that should be all of us. Every single one of us. Consider one another. Look around you and consider the lives that God has placed you in connection with and say, how do I help this person do more for the kingdom? We have a hard time looking and complaining about one another when we're asking that question, don't we? We, we have a hard time getting concerned and wrapped up in our own selfish desires when we're asking that kind of a question, don't we? We have a hard time seeing what may or may not be going right 
whenever we're asking that kind of a question. This is not the kind of a person who looks around and sees all of the things that are wrong. This is the kind of person that looks around and sees all of the possibilities of what God might be doing in our lives. And so he says, encourage one another. Well, in order for us to do that, there are at least four characteristics of an encouraging church in this passage. If we are going to become an encouraging people, yes, we need to concentrate on actually doing it. But there are at least four things that should be a part of our lives and that, that are the makeup, so to speak, of what this encouraging church looks like. And we have those kinds of people. Number one, it is a people who draw near to God. People who draw near to God. So that's what he says in verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now, he's not describing to be drawing near to one another, although that is certainly there in the passage. The whole passage is based upon this togetherness. And you'll see it all throughout as you hear the word us. It's always a third person pronoun describing us together and not just me by myself. But in verse 19, we know who we're drawing near to. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Remember, that's where God was. And so there was a separation ultimately in the Old Testament between God and his people. We didn't get the chance in the Old Testament to be near God's presence in a in a way that that was intimate and in a way that was experiential. No, we had to look at God's presence from a distance. You remember We are sinful people separated from a holy God. And the only way in the Old Testament that we could we could have his presence among us was this separation in the holiest place divided by a curtain, divided by a courtyard, divided by a larger courtyard and then us. We didn't get to be with God in that kind of a way. He dwelt among us, but at least it was still in a way that was separate. You couldn't even touch the holiest things and this sacrifice had to be offered in order for you to be near God. Imagine if you were to every Sunday morning come to church and have to have a high priest meet you at the door and you could not come into this place with God. You had to stand out there and a high priest met you and there were sacrifices done and you walked through that door and then through this door into the presence of the Lord and you never got to spend time like this with God. The church that is an encouraging church recognizes that we now have immediate access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Immediate access into His presence. We can actually draw near to God. And there's commands throughout Scripture, if we had time this morning to look, where we're commanded to actually draw near to Him. God wants us to come and be with Him in His presence. That's what worship is. Worship is not for me. Worship is not for you. Worship is so that we might come into God's presence and be for God. And so we draw near to Him. Two reasons why the author of Hebrews says that we have access to the the holiest place. He says, number one, by the blood of Jesus. And so we have a perfect sacrifice. That's the reason why we can even draw near to God. Listen to me this morning very carefully. In our own nature, apart from God doing something on our behalf, 
We have no ability to come anywhere near God. In fact, the Bible teaches that that we don't even seek God. That there's none righteous, no, not one. This is Romans 3. None righteous, no, not one. That there is none who seek after God. You and I in our nature, we are are running so far from God, it's not even describable in human terms. How separate we are from God the Father. And yet, because of the blood of Jesus offered for us on the cross, you and I, the, the veil was torn. Ephesians 2 says that though we were afar off from God, we were without God and without hope in the world, that God brought us near by the blood of His cross. He removed the middle wall of separation. And so you and I have direct access to be with God in His presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is such good news. Because there is no other access. We have, we have immediate access through a perfect sacrifice, through Christ, this new and living way, not, not a way that was ultimately flawed, imperfect, but through a perfect sacrifice in Jesus. And that is through the veil that is His flesh. We go right on through into the presence of a holy God. The second reason He gives us is that we have a living advocate. And, and I love this. I, I love that Jesus died for me, don't you? I love that Jesus paid my debt. Don't you, don't you love that this morning? That I don't have to pay that anymore? Don't you love that this morning? But it's not only that, because I don't know about you, but I'm still an imperfect sinner that still makes some grand mistakes in my life. Amen? Anybody there with me? Or am I by myself this morning? Yeah. Some grand mistakes in my life. But notice what it says. Since we have a great high priest. It didn't say since we had or since God made a way back then on the cross to give us a high priest and, and He did what was required. No, He says since we have a high priest over the house of God. Hebrews 7 tells us, it gives us a little bit more light on this. Hebrews 7 verse 30, or 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He, that is Jesus, holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them or for us. We have a high priest who is interceding for us constantly right now so that when I sin, when I'm weak, when I'm flawed, that Christ is interceding for me before the Father and saying, I've already covered Him with my blood. Isn't that good news this morning? And so He lives and He intercedes for us so I can come into the, prom- to the, the presence of God because I have a living advocate. So then how do we draw near to God? Well, He tells us. Four different ways. He tells us that we are to draw near with a true heart. So number one, we draw near with sincere hearts. We draw near with sincere hearts. You don't come into the presence of God if if you realize what Jesus has done for you. You don't come into the presence of God with just kind of a flighty, thoughtless kind of approach. Like, oh, this is just another day to come to the church and gather with God's people and we're just going to do the same thing we did last week and get it over with and move on to the Super Bowl tonight. You don't think about it in those terms anymore. You think about it in terms of, man, I I get to be with God's people today, be in His house, and be in His presence together. Like, I get to do that today. 
And so I want to come with every bit of zeal and passion that's within me to come and worship Him. Like, I get to do that. I I don't have that by default. That is something that was purchased for me by the blood of Jesus. So I'm going to come with a true heart. I'm going to come sincerely. And my worship is going to come from things I'm really feeling and thinking and believing and not something that's just outside here, but something I've grabbed hold of within me. It's a sincere heart. He also says that we come with full assurance of faith or in full assurance of faith. In other words, a a secure faith. You come not, not hoping God will do something. Not praying God will do something. Curtis, we've had this conversation over and over again. You don't come just wanting and hoping and praying by some stretch that God may do something today. You come believing that God is going to do something today. Expecting great things from God today. Secure faith. Jesus didn't maybe die on the cross or hopefully die on the cross or possibly shed His blood. Jesus did it. It's done. And so you and I come believing in faith that Christ is going to do something. Full assurance of faith. Then he says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We come, we come with clear consciences. So many Christians, so many Christians are imprisoned to guilt. Imprisoned to this shame of their lives. And, and we come knowing that Christ has set us free from that guilt. Hebrews would go on in just a couple of chapters and tell us that Jesus, that Jesus went to the cross despising the shame. He went to the cross and, and took our shame upon Himself so that we might be set free from our shame. Hear this, believer. If you this morning are feeling captive to your guilt and your shame, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the power of sin and death. We have been set free. Amen? We've been set free from our shame. There's two reasons why you might come in this morning experiencing shame in God's presence. Maybe you experience shame because you don't realize that. You don't realize that Christ has forgiven you fully if you're in Christ this morning. You've been set free. Others of you this morning, you're so full of shame because when you came to this place, you've been living a life that doesn't look like Jesus the whole week. And you keep coming into God's presence with sin in your heart and on your mind and in your life. And so that leads us to the fourth thing he says, bodies washed with pure water. We, we come with holy lives. We want to live in, holy, in, in holiness, not because, not because somehow that earns God's favor, God being satisfied in us, but because, listen, my sin is what, what sent my Savior to the cross and I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. Like it's, it's in my heart. It's a war against this sinful man. And I, I want to keep putting him to death because Jesus lives in me. I don't want to have anything to do with my former life. I want Jesus to be honored and, and pleased with my life and my decisions and my feelings and my actions. I want Jesus to be pleased there. And so with every bit of fervor in me, I put that to death because I want to come near to God. And I want to come near to God in holy living. And so we do. 
What does this have to do with encouraging one another? Well, you cannot, listen to me carefully, you cannot encourage anyone to draw near to God that you are not drawing near to Him yourself. A church that draws near to God is going to be insatiably attracted to doing things that please and honor Him. We're going to want to grow in love and and righteousness. We want to be stirred up toward those things. And so it ought to stir you. So a people who draw near to God is the kind of church that is an encouraging church. Then he says that a people who hold fast to the gospel. By the way, you'll notice these are really four commands in the text. Four different commands that kind of outline the text for you. So this one is found in verse 24. He says, and let us consider one another to stir one another up. Uh, or rather, back up uh, in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast. We're a people that hold fast to the gospel. We don't hold fast to works. We, we hold fast to God being pleased with us. In the fact that Jesus died for us, we hold fast to that. And there was a there was a tendency or temptation in the early church for them to go back to living a life of works and trying to trying to let their works please the father and not living in the reality that they're already pleasing to God. And there's a temptation for us at every turn to go back to a works based salvation The difference in our lives now is that the works that we have are are not so that we might be pleasing to God, but rather because God is pleased in us, we, we live out of the overflow. And so the writer reminds them, you hold fast to the gospel because you're not the one who is faithful. You're not the one who is the high priest. You're not the one whose blood is shed. Rather, there is one who is an ever faithful one. Jesus Christ is our living hope. He is the one that by His cross has paid our debt. He is the one that through His resurrection has conquered every one of our enemies. And He is the one through His return who will gather up His church and through whom we will spend all, with whom we will spend all of eternity. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that is our hope. And I love this phrase. Amen. That's good preaching. Amen. I love this phrase. I love this phrase. The one who promised is faithful. He's faithful. You never have to wonder, is God for me? You never have to wonder, is God doing things for my good? You never have to wonder, is God going to take care of you? Because the one who promised is faithful. When the the church is built upon the faithfulness of God, then it is a prerequisite for stirring one another up. Because when we recognize that God is faithful, then we want to be faithful to Him. It's a desire. So when we hold fast to the Gospel, then we'll be an encouraging church. Third, a people who, who commit to one another. A people who commit to one another. You see the, the togetherness all throughout this passage. Since we have confidence. He says, let 
us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. Let us consider how to stir one another to, to love and good works. And then he uses this statement, and not neglecting to meet together. The whole context is an us context, that we should stay together with the church. We have to be a people who commit to one another. Throughout the New Testament, the Bible describes the church as members of one another, as the the household of faith, people who are joined and knit together. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if if you want to be an encouraging church, you've got to actually be together. You can't encourage anyone to do anything if you're not around people and in relationship to begin with. And more than that, he talks about this being a covenant, a committed relationship in which you are a part of the church body. Hear me carefully this morning. There is no concept in the Bible of inactive church membership. You hear me? There is no idea in the Bible that church membership could ever be considered inactive. You didn't join the church by getting your name on a roll in the New Testament. You join the church by being born again and by being baptized as a new believer in Christ and by attending and being a part of church. That's what it meant to be a part of the church. Amen? You don't have to beg New Testament Christians to come to church. You know why? Because that's the only thing they understand as how am I a part of this church? Because I come and I serve with them and I, I stir other people up to, to love and good works. That's what, that's what we do when we pray together and we love each other and we serve one another. All of these one another commands are built on the reality that we assemble together. And not just in, in some superficial, shallow, occasional way, but rather we, we assemble together on the first day of the week. That is the pattern in the New Testament. Some may wonder, why do we even worship on Sundays? We were just having this conversation in the sound room this morning. Why do we even worship on Sundays? Well, the reality is that the New Testament church did. Very early on the first day of the week, the church or the, the, the women came to the tomb. And from that moment on, we see the church gathering. First Corinthians, we see the church gathering on the first day of the week. The church comes together for worship. You can't be a part of a church if you're not a part of a church. It just stands to reason in the same way that we wouldn't call someone a car, call something a car that's not in a garage. And we wouldn't call someone a, a, a doctor or nurse or policeman or what we wouldn't call them if they're not serving in that capacity you wouldn't call someone a pastor if they're not serving in that capacity you don't call someone a church member who's not active in the church so he says commit to one another if you're going to stir one another to love and good works you got to come together sometimes and it's got to be in a committed way and then number four he gives one final Statement, not neglecting to meet together. And then he says, as is the habit of some, by the way, some are doing that, but encouraging one another. And then he says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so this is a people. An encouraging church is a people who anticipate the Savior. Anticipate the Savior. Everywhere we see this kind of a statement, encouraging one another. It's almost always tied to the idea of Jesus' return. 
You see it here in Hebrews 10. You also see it in 1 Thessalonians 4. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, uh, about those who are asleep, that you, may, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. And it's a passage describing the return of Jesus. We use it as funerals often. But the last verse in the passage says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encouragement. Same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, when we're warned about the times and the seasons, wanting us to be fully aware of the day of the Lord, Paul says. The last verse in that passage says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Hebrews 3, same deal. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you Uh, Any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. Not explicitly referring to the day of Jesus, but ultimately putting this time frame and warning the church that there is coming a day when it will no longer be called today, when Jesus is returning for His bride. There is an urgency within the body of Christ that drives us to love and good works. The fact of the matter is, church, in view of the return of Jesus Christ, we don't have time to fight and argue. Amen? Amen? I mean, if y'all want to fight and argue, you go right at it. But I'm going to look for the coming of Jesus. I'm, I'm not there with you. Just not there with you. We don't have time for it. Because there are people in the Funiac Springs that are dying and going to hell and in need of Jesus Christ. We don't have time to fight and argue. We don't have time to, to mess around and to relax in our, in our casual Christianity. This is, a, this is a day when Jesus could return back at any moment. And so we ought to be stirring one another up. Tell one another about Jesus. Tell the world about Jesus. Love each other more. Love the church more. Love the community more. Because there's coming a day and Jesus is coming soon. And we sing about that and we talk about that, but it's reality. And the day is coming that, that we should give an account to the Lord for the way that we lived our lives. And so there ought to be a sense of urgency. When, when there's an urgency about this thing, we want to stir one another up. We're, we're a body. I think about those of us um, in, our, in our nation that serve on foreign soil. And, and some of you have family that serve there. And uh, whenever, whenever there's wartime mentality, things are different. Whenever, whenever those soldiers are back home, you, you find soldiers getting into fights with each other and all those kinds of things. It's an interesting uh, kind of a world in the military. And, and a lot of you know that. When they get over onto that soil and they know that there's a mission and this is urgent, then they love one another and they're encouraging one another and they're stirring one another up. And I'm I'm here to tell you this morning that we live in wartime mode. And the kingdom of God is at hand. And you and I have been called to be soldiers in that army fighting for His mission and His kingdom. And we have more to do and fight with one another. We ought to be stirring one another up. Encouraging one another. Can I ask you to bow your heads with me this morning? With every head bowed and every eye closed. Some of you here this morning. Some of you have been living a life of good works. Trying to honor the Lord. With what you do and what you love. And and you've been trying to just kind of live a life. And hope that somehow at the end of things. The good outweigh the bad. And. And you'll be okay. 
You do enough good things for people. Maybe you serve your community. You do enough that He'll be happy with you. God doesn't base us, judge us based on that. Some of you think that, that just by coming to church, you're drawing near to God and, and somehow that He's pleased in that. And that's, that's not what the, the Bible describes as drawing near to God. See, to draw near to God, we must be born again. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. That means that I surrender my life. I don't have anything to offer. I'm completely bankrupt. I bring nothing to the table. Christ brings everything. And so all I can hope for is to plead for God's mercy. As a sinner separated from a holy God, all I can hope for is that somehow, some way, He will look beyond the, the faults and the mistakes and the mess that I've made and He'll, he'll let me at least take a, a seat at the table. And instead, what we find in the Gospel is that He gives us boldness as sons and daughters, born again by His blood, by His Spirit, to enter into His presence and to enjoy who He is and who He's created us to be. We'll just surrender all that we are. Maybe that's never happened in your life. In just a few moments, as the praise team sings and as we stand to our feet in a few moments, I want to just invite you to come. The blood of Jesus was shed for you. Would you turn from sin and trust in Christ today? Others of you in this room... You've been that one that tears others down instead of building others up. Your words, your thoughts toward people, your actions have been more destructive than they have been constructive. And you need to be the kind of person that looks around at your brothers and your sisters in Christ and you help them become more like Jesus. You help them love Him more and love one another more. You, you help their their character to look more like Jesus by teaching them and showing them. Making disciples. Some of you this morning, you're that one who needs encouragement. And I hope that you've been encouraged by God's Spirit today. That you need to come to this altar and you need to confess your own fear, anxiety, worry, your own lack of contentment in what Christ is doing in your life and you need to surrender freshly to Him. There may be other decisions that need to be made in this room. You know what they are and God knows. Today is the day to move on that decision. To be stirred to obedience. And I hope that you'll do that. I'm praying that you'll do that. All across the room as we stand to our feet. I'm going to pray. Our praise team is going to sing. This altar is open. You come this morning. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in this place. We need you. We need you to convict us and we need you to change us. Because you are God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.